Hello and welcome to the webinar titled Iran Europe Dynamics and the JCPO Negotiations, organized by the Middle East Institute National University of Singapore. My name is Asif Shuja, and I am a senior research fellow at the Middle East Institute. I will be the moderator for the today's event. Joining us today are three distinguished guests as our panelists. Our first panelist is Professor Heinz Gardner, who is a lecturer for political science at the universities of Vienna and Krems. He's also chair of the advisory board of the Institute's International Institute for Peace in Vienna. Our second panelist is Dr. Ali Fatullah Nejad, who is an associate fellow at the Isam Ferris Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs, American University of Beirut. He chose to publish his book from Singapore titled Iran in an Emerging New World Order. The third panelist for today is Dr. Clement Therme, who is a teaching fellow at Sciences Po and research associate at the School for Advanced Studies in Social Sciences, Paris. Against the backdrop of the ongoing JCPOA negotiations currently being held in Vienna, our panelists will explore the inherent dynamics between Iran and the European Union. It is notable that since the start of the Iranian nuclear controversy about two decades ago, the EU has been steadfastly mediating between Iran and the US, an effort that has continued until today. Therefore, through our discussion, we seek to find answers to questions such as EU's motivation behind its central role in the nuclear negotiations, the nature of Iran-EU relations, and Iran's role in the Middle East as seen by the EU. Before we invite our first speaker, let me inform our distinguished audience that after the presentations of the three speakers who will be speaking for about 15 minutes each, we shall have a question answer session. The audience may ask their questions by sending them to the MEI event through the Zoom chat box, who in turn would direct them to me to read out for the panelists. With these details, let me hand over the virtual floor to Professor Heinz Gardner. Professor, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. Thank you for organizing uh, this event um, and uh, especially to the uh, National University and the Middle East uh, uh, Institute. Uh, I, will ha I have a PowerPoint uh, presentation and I will share the screen right now with you. Just a second. Uh, I guess it's visible for you now. So um, again, thank you for the uh, introduction. And uh, as you said, I will speak on uh, the uh, Iran Iranian-European uh, relations, especially the, in the context uh, of the uh, GCPOA. Um, because the GCPOA are taking, uh, negotiations are taking place in Again, right now, I will also uh, focus on the status of the negotiations uh, a little bit later. But before that, I will look back briefly to the history uh, of these uh, negotiations, which started in uh, April uh, last year. Um, uh, the GCPF 2015 uh, has been called by the European Union 
uh, as a masterpiece of uh, effective uh, multilateralism. And in fact, it's the best negotiated uh, arms control agreement uh, in, in history uh, with a very comprehens comprehensive uh, verification system. Uh, and in contrast, what we have, what we have heard from uh, the opponents of the GCPA and the Trump administration and also Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, the GCPA is not expiring. Uh, it's permanent. It, in its preamble, uh, it says that uh, Iran never will uh, acquire uh, nuclear weapons. And this preamble is based on the UN Security Council Resolution uh, 2231. So it's uh, based on international uh, law. Um, after 2015, many European uh, economic delegations and individual companies traveled to Iran and um, negotiated uh, several memoranda of uh, under understandings. So the hope was called, uh, great that the uh, GCPA and uh, will bring, have also an uh, impact on the economy uh, of uh, Iran and also on the EU-Iran uh, uh, economic relations. Uh, but uh, we know after 2018, after President Trump uh, withdraw from uh, the agreement, uh, uh, the European companies have been threatened by uh, sanctionary, uh, secondary sanctions uh, if they do uh, business with Iran. Subsequently, the trade between the EU and Iran fell by uh, about 70 75%. The EU three the parties of the European Union managed to stay in the agreement, uh, but the uh, criticism was very tepid. The reaction uh, was um, pretty uh, was silence, and uh, there was almost no criticism about uh, President Trump's uh, uh, decision. After all, it was a violation of international law of the. Uh, UN Security Council Resolution uh, 2231. Uh, in many ways, also the Europeans echoed uh, what Secretary of State Pompeo said he wanted to include the missile issue, Iran's missiles and regional behavior into the GCPA. And that, of course, these issues have not been a part of the GCPA. And there is no arms control agreement in history, which includes uh, behavior. There wouldn't have been one arms control uh, uh, agreement during the Cold War if it had included uh, the behavior of the Soviet Union, for example, in, in Africa and some, somewhere, somewhere else. Uh, and also the missile issue, uh, there is there, of course, uh, arms control agreements, which include missiles, but they don't single out one party. So there's always uh, including uh, several uh, parties to these arms control agreements. That's why if the missile issues will be addressed, it has to be done in a regional context and not in the framework of the uh, GCPOA. The Europeans try to set up this uh, instex mechanism to bypass uh, uh, US sanctions, which did not really work very well. It was very insufficient. And this instrument of the blocking statute uh, never was impl implemented, blocking statute, which 
would impose uh, fees on European companies uh, which abide uh, by uh, UN, uh, uh, by, sorry, by US uh, sanctions. It took until uh, presidential candidate Joseph Bai announced in his election campaign that he will return to the GCPA. And uh, then the European Union uh, suddenly recognized that it has some responsibility here. After all, it chairs uh, the joint commission, commission of the uh, GCPOA. So it started uh, to uh, organize several meetings, uh, virtual and physically, which led to the start of the uh, negotiations in April uh, 2021 uh, in uh, Vienna. And uh, of course, because the US was not uh, part of the GCPA, it was not part of the Joint Commission either. So the talks between Iran and uh, uh, the US were indirect uh, talks. And in this situation, the European Union played a very useful mediating role to keep the communication uh, between the Iranian and the American uh, delegation uh, uh, working in spite of uh, external events like the attack on Iran's nuclear facilities uh, in Natanz and also the subsequent announcement by Iran to enrich uranium uh, by 60%. So the negotiations stayed on course and uh, this was mainly due uh, to the pragmatic approach of the European uh, uh, participants of the European uh, de uh, uh, delegations. Uh, the Europeans remained still silent about the secondary sanctions. They are still in place. So President Biden did not lift them. So European companies are still threatened by these uh, sex secondary uh, sanctions. Um, it, uh, if they were lifted, it would give the Europeans uh, some room to act, uh, to uh, act in a more independent uh, way. Uh, but still they are constrained by themselves by, this, by the threat of these uh, secondary uh, sanctions. And this in spite of the claim that the transatlantic relations between the US and the European Union uh, have been improved under the new American uh, administration. Uh, now to the uh, status of the uh, negotiations. So we had these six rounds in spring from April to uh, June and uh, much has been achieved uh, already. So um, in spite of Iran's claims that the previous administration didn't achieve much, uh, but it did. Uh, so about uh, there was a text uh, which has been agreed upon with about uh, 70 uh, percent uh, ready. And uh, it included also about 1,000 uh, sanctions that would be lifted and had an economic impact uh, on uh, Iranian society. Uh, already then, if the agreement would have put in force uh, at that time, uh, it would have given Iranians economy uh, a big uh, boost. However, there have been other issues which has which have not been resolved uh, yet. So they agreed to work in three baskets, the Iran's nuclear program, 
the sanctuary leave and how to implement. And more or less these three baskets are still uh, negotiated right now in Vienna, but they don't call them baskets anymore. Uh, in the seventh and eighth round, uh, which started at the end of uh, last year, year, there have been three texts, one the original text of uh, spring, the June text, and uh, two new texts by Iran on the nuclear program and the sanction relief. And uh, the, there was progress because they managed to merge the three texts into one text. So there was lots of uh, criticism in the international media that it didn't work and uh, no one is taking it seriously. Uh, but the delegations in Vienna uh, they are very pragmatic and took it uh, seriously. Um, now we have achieved a status uh, with uh, the technical on the technical issues uh, where only political decisions can uh, promote uh, further uh, progress uh, of the negotiations. And, and now we have this uh, situation where it seems possible uh, that uh, Iran and the US will talk directly uh, to, uh, to each other. Uh, of course, then the European Union and the delegation will, will lose uh, some of its uh, role uh, as uh, messengers and conveyors between Iran and uh, the US. Uh, I will not go too much into detail, detail, but I just want to mention the, uh, a few remaining uh, issues which have been not entirely resolved. So not all the sanctions which should be lifted has been, have been identified so far. Uh, the verification of sanction relief is uh, still a tricky issue because that's what Iran wants. Uh, not clarification yet about what to do with Iran's enhanced uh, uh, central futures, even so there have been several technical suggestions to do so, uh, which I can discuss uh, later. And one of the most difficult issues is that Iran wants to have a guarantee that the next US administration would not renege uh, from uh, the uh, agreement. Uh, but also there are some uh, suggestions already. And the last issue is that so-called sequencing the implementation uh, how, who starts first, who do, does what when, uh, but also here have been already in, in spring uh, discussed several suggestions. Um, so more generally, why does Europe have has a, such a uh, vested interest uh, in uh, uh, GCPOA? Because look, uh, when we look at what happened, what would be the consequences of the failure of the negotiations here in Vienna, uh, Iran, of course, would continue to enhance its uh, nuclear program, not necessarily uh, building a bomb, not necessarily leaving the non-proliferation uh, treaty uh, right away. Even so, it could threaten to do so. For the time being, it will remain in the safeguards uh, agreements uh, of the IEA. But that would be sufficient for Israel uh, to threaten with military strikes and even they will do uh, conduct some of uh, them and Israel might want to involve uh, the US. The US will not send ground troops because of the Afghanistan experience, but it might help out with intelligence, 
communication, uh, targeting, uh, also uh, airstrikes. Of course, Jan would react, it would react with all the means available asymmetrically, and that would be a destabilized situation uh, in the whole Middle East, and it will affect uh, Europe much more than it does uh, the US. Uh, finally, on the positive uh, outlook, if there is a success of the GCPF, the negotiations, it would benefit all. Uh, EU-Iran economic relations uh, would uh, improve dramatically. Maybe it would not go back uh, to the level of uh, after 2015, because many European companies already lost interest uh, in Iran and found markets uh, somewhere else. Uh, but still, and it would be a boost for the, uh, Iran's economy uh, and uh, would bring internal stability in Iran as well. Uh, the fear of nuclear proliferation by the Western countries, the US and uh, the European Union would be reduced um, drastically. And uh, also if there is a GCPA, it could be a platform for regional uh, arrangement, regional cooperation. Uh, if there is no GCPOA, regional um, talks uh, would be very difficult because if there is no backing of, of the US, regional talks will not really work uh, as well because you have these allies uh, of the US uh, in, uh, in, in the region. So final word, um, now we see this great power competition uh, between the US and China and the US uh, and Russia. And there was a dramatic decline of multilateralism during the Trump uh, administration and it did not really recover under the Biden uh, administration. Uh, if there is a GCPA, uh, it would be an example uh, that uh, multilateralism and uh, multilateral agreements uh, are still possible and uh, that it still works. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Professor, uh, for your uh, laying out of the canvas on which uh, uh, we will continue to work in this uh, rest of the webinar. Uh, the three points that I have uh, really noticed, uh, first is that uh, uh, when uh, Donald Trump, uh, President Donald Trump withdrew from the deal, EU was silent. Uh, when uh, uh, President Biden came and uh, he talked about coming back to the JCPOA, uh, then also the secondary sanction was not lifted, but EU was silent. The third, of course, is uh, your concern that EU has lost that, uh, that uh, power of being a messenger between uh, the parties in, in Vienna. So I think that is an observation that everybody has been uh, making and uh, we will discuss more uh, those things uh, later. But right now we are going uh, straight away to uh, our second panelist, uh, Dr. Clement. Uh, doctor, uh, the floor is yours. Thank you very much um, for the invitation. I'm very happy to be part of this uh, panel. So I will give, I think, more the French view uh, on the EU role, because I think EU is not a state. So the, we can ask ourselves, is there something that we can call an Iran policy, both at the EU level and, for my case, at the French level? 
I think there is not such a thing as the Iran policy. Why? Because I think in the view of Europeans government, Iran is not that important. Uh, it's not a positive aspect of diplomacy, it's a problem. So it's deal in a crisis management mode and it creates many problems. The first problem it creates, it's uh, with regional allies. So first, uh, the relationship uh, with uh, Gulf Arab states, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Israel, that are the main partners of Europe in the region. So if there is an opening uh, from any European country, it will face pressure like Russia and China uh, from uh, regional allies. So there is this idea that uh, that uh, Iranian uh, uh, policy could create problem uh, in other aspects, uh, more important aspects of uh, EU or state, uh, European state uh, regional policy. The second problem that create Iran is uh, to show, uh, as Professor shows, uh, the European weakness. There is not a, such a thing as uh, European economic sovereignty. So this is the issue of extraterritoriality of uh, American sanctions. So it's very difficult uh, for uh, European states or even the EU uh, to acknowledge the fact that there is not such a thing as sovereignty, that uh, European private actors will apply uh, US laws. So it's um, a political process to say that EU remains silent. I will not frame like this. I will say that our state remains silent. It is true, it's a fact-based analysis, but still uh, it's, it's not a political choice. Uh, it was uh, the fact that uh, EU private actors did not answer to the European um, institutions or to the European uh, states uh, protecting laws regarding US pressures. And if a company has to make a choice uh, between the US market and the Iranian market, or, or the, to use the US dollar uh, or not to use the US dollar, everyone will choose to use the US dollar and the US market. So I will argue, argue that. Uh, uh, this is going into the Iranian Islamic Republic political game uh, to divide between Europe and the US. So there is a trick here uh, for the European policy uh, that is caught between uh, US hegemony and uh, Iranian games. Uh, that means that they will try to use European as a leverage to avoid, to confront uh, the the ideological tenet of the Islamic Republic that is anti-US uh, feelings and sentiments. So it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you want, this EU weakness. But this is on the end of Iranian hardliners. Is, uh, Dr. Ali Fatulanejad will agree with me, I think, that is not only the Trump reservoir. It's too easy to frame the narrative focusing only on one factor. Uh, one has to re remember that at the time of the GCPOA, the Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei uh, prevent US investment in Iranian economy. So it was very naive, I think, for the European uh, private sector uh, to think that they could invest into the Iranian market in such a fragile uh, juridical framework at the time of the deal. So this is the economic aspect of uh, the European policy that is highly problematic. Uh, because the political cost 
to acknowledge the lack of independence uh, on the European side is tremendous because it means that we don't have any Iran policy. The other issue is a non-proliferation issue. For France, it's very important. So this is a debate uh, between strategists uh, and regional is a regional approach. So the strategy one, I think, all over Europe uh, in the state apparatus in the mid 2000. And so Iran is seen only through the nuclear lens. And I think we don't understand much of the Iranian issue when we focus only on the nuclear lens. Do this idea of um, around President Macron two, three years ago of the nuclear plus formula. Because I think if we want to have a long-term positive economic relationship with Iran, uh, to solve the nuclear issue is not enough. That can be only on a short-term uh, economic agreement for what we call the economic dividend of the deal. Uh, I think we need also an understanding on the regional policies, the ballistic missile, and the human rights issue, what we call the nuclear plus formula. So there is this debate also. Uh, among the expert community between the regional expert and the nuclear expert that are focusing only on the nuclear issue. And I think they don't understand much of uh, Iran evolution, uh, especially regarding the stability of the regime, the stability of the region. And that's why I think that the view of our allies in the region are more important today, especially in France. When we are talking of the mediation of President Macron, for instance, it was uh, proposed uh, following some advice from the UAE, for instance, after the attack in 2019 and this idea that there is a, a risk of military escalation. So sometimes also the proposal of the EU policy came from our allies in the region, more and more, I, I would argue. And the last point I think uh, is, uh, is was the EU really a mediator? I think Swiss, Switzerland is a mediator between the US and Iran because you know that the Swiss embassy uh, represents uh, the US interest uh, inside Iran. Uh, and also they can uh, convey some messages. But I think the Europe was never per se a real mediator. It's like Russia. It was always politicized because of our dependency towards the US. So the US is pleased to have a European as mediator. But the Islamic Republic prefer to have Russia or China as mediator. So there is this lack of trust. So it's not a, a balanced uh, mediator. It was never a balanced mediator. So uh, this idea of uh, dividing uh, between Europeans and the US, I think, on the Iranian issue is highly artificial. Uh, because what we share with the US, even during the Trump administration, was always more than what we share with the Islamic Republic of Iran. The, the issue, the, the reaction of the EU in terms of uh, officially supporting the deal was more uh, linked to the question of sovereignty. So they couldn't acknowledge publicly that they follow always uh, the US policy. So my argument in my last article on the topic is to say that there is not such a thing as a European policy towards Iran since 1979, before it exists uh, strategy because Iran was the first market, for instance, for the French export in the Middle East before Iraq of Saddam Hussein. But uh, I think since the beginning of the 2000, uh, I think this economic aspect that is very important, uh, I think after the failure of the first experience of the deal, 
uh, this factor will be less important. And the factor that will be more important will be the position of our allies in the Middle East regarding the Iranian issue. So we will try to, to build uh, an Iranian strategy that is convenient for our allies. This is the first aspect uh, in the EU uh, attitude, I think. And the second one will be to use Iran as a tool to get closer to the Biden administration and to build a common understanding uh, with uh, the US uh, using the Iranian issue. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Clement. Uh, uh, you have already clearly mentioned that there is no EU policy on Iran. And uh, you have also articulated the country-specific policy towards Iran. Uh, I wouldn't let you go so easily. I'll just mention uh, the, the EU security documents that they have been releasing uh, very regularly. In 2003, uh, uh, the document emphasized on uh, non-proliferation, you know? And this opportunity came through which they jumped into the, uh, the negotiation. Uh, then in 2014, uh, the European security dynamics uh, and the document emphasized on diversification of their energy, uh, not depending too much on Russian energy. Uh, so uh, they again started uh, to strive towards opening up the Iranian gas market. In the document of 2025, uh, their emphasis is on multilateralism. So I'll come back to you. Uh, on, on this indirect mechanism to reach Iran and uh, to their uh, activities. And of course, questions specific to, uh, to Fran Fr France also, the, the role of French, especially, especially after AUKUS. I'll come back and we will come back to the questions to you. And now uh, we are going back to our German-Iranian uh, political scientist, uh, our esteemed guest, uh, Dr. Ali Fatullah. Nejad, Iranians are these days having the last word. So our third panelist, uh, Dr. Ali, uh, the floor is yours. Uh, hi, Asif. Uh, good to be with you. Thank you to the Middle East Institute for setting up this very timely webinar. Uh, I'm gonna, in the next few minutes, I'm gonna offer just a few abbreviated remarks. Uh, first, I'm gonna start with um, a small review uh, on the Iran-European dynamics. Um, uh, before uh, Trump's withdrawal. Um, in a second step, we're gonna talk about developments ever since. And um, thirdly, I'm gonna talk about uh, prospects uh, for a uh, different or for a, a modified uh, policy from various EU states uh, or by focusing on Germany in the future. And last but not least, I'm gonna conclude with some observations that uh, may contradict some of the things that have been said um, uh, by uh, Professor Gerner. Um, uh, first, um, I think um, maybe we should start by saying that um, actually the EU's role is quite limited. The EU is not the central player in all of this. Um, it's very clearly that the main decision makers are both in Tehran and Washington because of um, the, you know, because of the distribution of power in this whole conflict constellation. So the EU per se cannot be a central actor uh, in all of that, and it has never been uh, that. But nevertheless, uh, the EU has stakes uh, when it comes to the Iran nuclear conflict. And um, it goes back to uh, the core interests that have been also enumerated by my co-panelists so far, which is, uh, first of all, uh, nuclear non-proliferation in the Middle East, uh, which Professor Gatner sketched out uh, accurately. 
Um, and for that, uh, you know, the EU has hailed uh, the JCPOA as a landmark agreement, uh, as a masterpiece, how Professor Gatton put it, um, first and foremost because of that. But uh, this aspect is also related to others, uh, which also goes back to uh, European Union interests. One, uh, another one is, um, is, a, is, is business. Um, so I think uh, for a lot of European uh, countries, especially after the economic crisis of 2008, there's been a renewed interest in the Iranian market. Um, I'm not going to judge about the realities of that interest uh, that Clément, uh, uh, Dr. Tarm, uh, quite nicely put. So there's been a lot of illusions um, when it comes to this kind of ec economic bonanza that the Europeans were expecting uh, to enter after the implementation of the JCPOA in January 2016. Um, because, uh, you know, uh, regardless of sanctions, there are other problems in terms of investment in Iran that go, uh, you know, that uh, concern Iraq, Iran's blacklisting, for instance, um, and uh, also the political economy uh, of the Islamic Republic uh, that also complicates the involvement of uh, outside business. And this has also happened with uh, non uh, or non-European countries too. Um, another issue, uh, another core issue of, for the Europeans is trying to evade uh, the flow of refugees. So this is why they argue they want to evade, uh, avoid any kind of uh, you know, military confrontation to emerge. Hence, if you look at the figures, um, uh, despite, uh, you know, despite the avoidance of a war, uh, for instance, Iranians still figure among um, the top groups of uh, immigrants uh, flowing to Europe. And this goes back to the internal situation in Iran. So there is no direct linkage, in fact, between uh, necessarily between the two, but it has mostly to do also with the domestic conditions in the country. Of course, the Syria crisis has been you know, quite a shock moment for the uh, for the Europeans, but I doubt that the right lessons have been learned from that experience. Um, and um, uh, of course, uh, all of that is framed in a kind of geostrategic uh, reading of the of Middle East geopolitics that uh, very much abides to a uh, authoritarian stability paradigm. Uh, that, of course, uh, both the United States but also Europe has pursued vis-a-vis. All uh, you know, Middle Eastern autocracies, uh, you know, basically European uh, neighbor, Europe's neighboring region over the past decades, and uh, the same has been. Uh, one could also observe in terms of EU's Iran policy that it was also very much geared uh, toward uh, maintaining authoritarian stability, and this is very much on display um, by uh, the silence. And I think here the term would be more accurate. Uh, by Europe uh, after the implementation of the JCPOA in 2016, when it comes to Iran's regional policies, especially in, in, in Syria, but also in other theaters of conflict in the region, uh, and all on, on the deteriorating human rights situation. So there was a deafening silence from European capitals, also vis-a-vis -vis the two nationwide uprisings that have happened um, in this period uh, that are very, uh, you know, they are central to an understanding of the, uh, of the question of stability of the Islamic Republic and also central to the understanding of the development stage that Iran finds itself. Um, so, uh, and, and then the reaction was from both Brussels and Berlin basically saying that during those, uh, you know, nationwide uh, uprisings uh, that were also uh, met with brutal, uh, you know, brutal reaction by the Iranian state was to call upon both sides to stop the violence, uh, whereas there was only one side who, 
actually, of course, uh, you know, ex uh, used it. So this is also quite telling in terms of, um, you know, um, uh, European uh, policy. Um, now, after the withdrawal uh, of the uh, of, of the Trump administration from the uh, from the JCPOA, uh, there was uh, there was not really a silence for Europe. It was actually um, quite an agitation, political agitation at least. There were senior EU policymakers who were saying that, well, look, uh, we heavily criticized the U.S. decision. And we want to step in. We want to provide Iran some economic relief to, uh, for the Iranians to, uh, you know, to convince them to uh, abide by, to keep abiding by the deal, which they did. Um, and uh, then they, you know, for example, Mogherini, uh, the foreign policy chief of the EU back then, offered a list of about a dozen uh, points that uh, would forge a closer European-Iranian economic relations. But all of them uh, had no standing in reality because of the, uh, you know, continuing uh, weight of uh, extraterritorial sanctions of the United States, which put uh, this choice that uh, Clément uh, nicely explained uh, between uh, the U.S. and Iran, and of course everyone, uh, you know, decided, uh, you know, for the U.S. So um, all of that uh, was, of course, you know, a display of the lack of economic sovereignty. Um, uh, and nevertheless, the Iranians, after the withdrawal of the JCP, uh, after Trump's withdrawal, for one year banked on Europe uh, to step in and help them out. So, uh, so there was a one year uh, that, uh, you know, there was a wait and see approach from the Iranians, which I back then also explained to be very naive from the Iranians to do that, given uh, you know the, the realities of power and of course nothing happened you know also instant uh, insects the um the channel that was set up um to uh you know shield uh european iranian business from u.s sanctions has never worked um so all of that um uh, is i think important to remember also the focus solely on trump uh for the collapse of the nuclear deal i agree with clement is also um uh, a bit misleading. Uh, of course, there is a uh, there is a strong, um, uh, you know, uh, responsibility on the Trump administration to leave the deal that was working basically, uh, in terms of nuclear non-proliferation at least. But when you look at the expectations that were tied to the link, which were formulated in the preamble of the JCPOA, which is basically the pacification of the Middle East, this never happened. Um, one could even argue that the opposite happened, that Iran got emboldened um, by the JCPOA in terms of um, expanding its regional policies, but also its political missile programs, which un, uh, up until today and for the future will remain, uh, you know, controversial issues that, uh, you know, uh, no one can really ignore in terms of having a long-term or mid-term, even a mid-term arrangement with uh, Iran. Um, now, the th um, thirdly, um, I think uh, against the backdrop what I was laying out, there have been a lot of also criticism raised vis-a-vis -vis the use, uh, you know, Iran policy, also by very prominent, uh, you know, by now focusing on Germany, which is the most important country uh, in Europe when it comes to Iran business, uh, but also probably beyond. Uh, so there's been also, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, critical voices that were raised by very prominent uh, Iranian Germans here criticizing the German government uh, to being silent to solely focus on the nuclear deal, whereas the main issues are non-nuclear. So this kind of nuclear, you know, the, the concentration on the nuclear lenses, uh, Dr. Tern put it, 
uh, has been criticized heavily, also by parties that are now part of the German government, notably the Green Party that, run the, that runs the foreign ministry. Um, so, uh, but all this criticism has no, has so far uh, did not you know, yield any results. But we have to see and wait whether in the future it will uh, yield results, because after all, the new German government has uh, pledged to pursue a value-based uh, foreign policy that um, you know, much more uh, heavily uh, or you know, focuses on uh, human rights. Whether this can be a turning point away from uh, Europe's uh, reliance on this authoritarian stability paradigm is another question. But I would argue that from even a realistic point of view, um, you know, this kind of authoritarian stability policy is not going to go anywhere because it is only going to create short-term stability and not long-term stability. So we have to, you know, we have to widen um, our, lens, our lens to include uh, other important factors when it comes to the development and stability of European neighboring, uh, of Europe's neighbor, neighboring region, uh, also Iran. Uh, because all of that is also very much important in terms of uh, stability. Um, so uh, in, in conclusion, uh, I would, um, I think, um, uh, what, what I would, um, you know, say that in terms of the, um, of course, uh, if a JCPOA is fortunate, I think uh, this is something important to happen, uh, first and fo foremost because of uh, nuclear non-proliferation. Uh, we have to look um, at what is widely discussed as the economic dividends. I think uh, not, there, in most cases, we, are, we have a very superficial reading. Um, uh, if we just look back at what happened, uh, you know, after the implementation of, uh, of the JCPOA in January 2016, there was a real, there was impressive economic growth, uh, you know, in Iran, GDP growth that came against the backdrop primarily of revitalized oil exports, right? And oil exports per se are, uh, you know, uh, capital intensive, but not creating uh, employment. Uh, plus the fact, uh, the very nature of the political economy of the Islamic Republic did not allow uh, for the trickling down of this economic benefits onto uh, average Iranians as uh, almost all, uh, all observers had uh, hoped for. Uh, but in fact, led in, during this period to a widening of economic income, uh, income inequality. Um, and this led to social frustration in Iran by 2016 and 17 that paved the way for the first, you know, this kind of radical nationwide uprising in uh, December, um, in, in the turn of the year 2017-18. So all of that is important to understand the dynamics of what we're talking about here because it's not only the nuclear issue that is at hand, there are wider dynamics at base. So in other words, what is important is the socioeconomic dividends uh, of this economic deal. And this pertains to um, decision makers in Tehran, of course, whether they will be able to do that or not. Otherwise, we might see a replica of what I just sketched out, what happened over the last few years, that basically sanctions were removed uh, you know, people were hoping to get some of that economic benefit. It didn't happen. Uh, there was social frustration because of widening income inequality that, that led to not necessarily to a stabilization of the state. So this is um, also something that um, uh, we should uh, bear in mind. Last but not least, uh, I, I think we also should be careful uh, in uh, suggesting, uh, as was in the past and also did not, uh, you know, uh, become true, 
that the JCPOA can serve as a platform for wider regional cooperation. I think uh, this pertains to other variables and not necessarily to the JCPOA. Uh, so I think there is a lot of wishful thinking, especially from the European side to read uh, the JCPOA as such a platform. I think the reality is much more complex and there's no direct linkage between the two. So I'm gonna stop here and I'm uh, happy to uh, you know, delve into more detailed uh, questions arise. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Ali. Uh, and quite rightly, I also feel because uh, uh, when you uh, look at the earth, <clears throat> we take uh, gravity for, for, for granted, we take air flow for granted. So I think the European Union's role is just like that. We are taking EU's role for granted. If we imagine if there was no EU, then what would have been uh, the scenario today, you know? Uh, uh, in the joint commission of JCPOA, uh, uh, there are eight parties, eight votes, out of which four belongs to EU. EU uh, as such, and then there are three other countries of European Union. Uh, so it is playing a lot of weight here, and of course, silently. So uh, the whole idea of organizing this kind of discussion is to uh, actually decipher uh, whether uh, European Union is completely out of the game or it is that silent player who has been moving uh, the, the pieces on the, on the chessboard or the truth is somewhere in the middle. Uh, of course, uh, the wisdom says that the truth is somewhere in the middle, but that particular position has to be found out uh, because a lot of other answers of geopolitics can be, uh, uh, I mean, attended to. So uh, one uh, direct link uh, of all these issues is, of course, is the role of Russia. Because uh, as I mentioned earlier also, uh, the European Union's dependence in terms of energy on Russia and uh, Dr. Jawad Zarif's, uh, uh, you know, uh, what he said about Russia's role in JCPOA and the current role of uh, Russian uh, diplomats and Russian, uh, you know, officials. Uh, and of course, the recent visit of uh, Iranian uh, president to Russia. Uh, so what exactly is the European Union's energy dependence on Russia? Uh, how is it so helpful for Russia that it would not like to have that deal? But despite all these assumptions, the current proactive role of Russia, so what exactly would be the outcome under this dynamic? If we could go uh, according to our uh, the sequence of panel to answer this question. And in the meantime, I would request uh, our uh, audience to uh, keep sending us the questions so that we can attend to them also. So Professor uh, Gartner, this question, uh, uh, could you please answer first and then we move on to the other panelists. Um, yeah, if I, I, I go to Asha, just a couple of uh, points that I uh, would like to uh, underline uh, that the European Union would not be an actor. Um, European Union and uh, the parties to the GCPA, they do have common interests. So they do have common interests, even so they are not, of course, a, a sovereign uh, a state. So they have a common interest in non-proliferation, in improving uh, trade, uh, in working uh, multilateralism. And uh, it appears, it, it appeared that during the negotiations, there would have been differences uh, uh, among this uh, European uh, uh, parties to the GCPA and uh, France was uh, always seen as one who wanted to slow down uh, the negotiations. However, it turned out that now uh, France has given up its role of uh, bad cop 
and uh, is uh, supporting the progress of the GCPA because I guess we are now in this uh, final uh, stages to the uh, uh, agreement. And um, also uh, to the internal situation and uh, the improvement of the economy, there was an improvement of the economy as uh, Mr. Fatullah Nehat said uh, after 2015, 2016, uh, and uh, the, the population benefited, especially there is a strong uh, middle class, which still has uh, the possibility for uh, keeping up uh, the decent uh, lives. So if you look at the statistics of the purchasing power uh, parity, uh, Iran is still on the 18th uh, rank uh, internationally uh, because that means the internal consumption and it's still it's still the same rank. The internal consumption did not really have been not reduced. Uh, of course, poverty is rising because of the infl infl inflation rate. There is inequality. That's true. There's a very rich uh, part of the society. Uh, but the resistance economy managed to keep some, some sort of internal consumption um, uh, alive. Um, I, I don't want to speak too long because I wanted to say something about regional issues as well, but I will come to, uh, to it uh, a little bit later. A uh, question of Russia. Uh, I know what uh, Foreign Minister Sarif said about uh, Russia indirectly. Um, before the uh, GCPA 2015 has been uh, concluded. Uh, I have the impression right now in Vienna that Russia is playing an active, uh, constructive role and Russia wants to have a, GC a GCPA. And it is true, it's not only the uh, European Union, uh, which is sort of the, uh, the EU parties to the GCPA uh, who are mediating. Uh, Russia is doing the same thing right now because we do have this uh, all kinds of bilateral and multilateral talks uh, going on, except uh, the direct meetings between Iran uh, and the US. And here Russia is playing some sort of uh, mediator uh, as well. But having said this, I would say the negotiations here in Vienna would not have happened if there wouldn't have been the European Union. So European Union might be sidelines when it comes to substance, sidelined when it comes to uh, substance, uh, but in organizational matters, it was very important uh, for the European Union to uh, chair the joint commission. Uh, concerning Russia, Russia, interestingly enough, is uh, uh, also interested in having an example of uh, multilateralism. Here, Russia and the European Union uh, on, uh, on the same, uh, on the same uh, page. Uh, I do not think that the GCPA depends on uh, energy questions uh, that much. Uh, so that is a political issue. It's not an uh, issue on uh, dependency on uh, Russian uh, gas uh, uh, or anything else. So it's a uh, case uh, sui, uh, sui, sui generis. And uh, that's why I do think a working uh, GCPOA had catastrophic, would have catastrophic consequences for the whole region, because you said there are other issues maybe might more important than a nuclear issue. If you don't have a GCPOA, there would be no uh, progress in the other issues as well. 
that would be a worsening situation in the relations in the Middle East, and it would be very destabilizing. So GCPA is the basis for many other issues with which has to be discussed. So I cannot really uh, elaborate on that uh, right now, but maybe we can come back to it in the Q&A uh, session later as well. Uh, sure, thank you so much, Professor. And that's why we keep hearing sometimes Geneva, sometimes Vienna, sometimes maybe Brussels. So Europe has been playing, whether we realize it or not, uh, an important, although uh, it's not been making headlines, uh, so, but for academics, I think it's important to uh, focus attention to what is underneath. Uh, so, uh, the same question uh, to uh, Dr. Clement. Do you have your views uh, slightly differently from the professor? Even if you concur, please say that. Yes, uh, I think, for instance, the gas, you mentioned the gas issue. I, I was uh, myself uh, involved uh, in the gas consultancy um, with French company at the time when we were dreaming about uh, the Iranian gas market. But it was really a dream, you know, because uh, gas needs investment, billion of dollars, uh, total. Gas de France at the time was involved. Linde, the German, competing with Accents, the French license for liquefied natural gas. Never happened. Why? Because Iran chose to uh, uh, use gas domestically. And you have a crisis now. Iran imports gas. It's a gas importer. So gas is a symptom of the failure of the Islamic Republic, a disaster, an economic disaster. So to bet on Iranian gas export, you cannot do that before 10 years uh, because you have to invest. And this investment will not happen because we explain why. Because you don't have a, a political framework uh, for investment in the Islamic Republic after the first experience of 2015. Total said already that they will not come back after a new deal. So it's not an issue of European being a player. Maybe we can keep saying that bureaucrats are making policies. It's partially true. But econo European economic actors, if you look at the narrative of from the point of view of the economic private actor, it's very different from the narrative of the top of EU level or the state. I was at a meeting with European companies when Trump withdrew from the deal. And uh, it was a business decision not to go to Iran. It was not a political decision. So there is a lot of confusion because of the Iranian game. We're trying to use European private actors uh, to build a new relationship uh, with uh, European states. But it's not working that way. Uh, the Marxist strategy of the Mullahs, if you want, uh, it's not working because these companies apply U.S. rule. You, can't, you cannot stream death to America on Friday, uh, the prayer, and invite a European company uh, to invest billions of dollars. So this is an Iranian problem. It's not a European problem. So it's very important for us to understand that uh, the private sector understood now what is the Iranian market. And uh, you can have trade. Maybe we can buy oil, so European can buy European can play this role, but I don't forecast in the short term uh, new investments. I don't forecast international companies rushing to go back to Iran like it was the case after the, the first version. On the idea of France being bad cop and the US being good cop, it's changing. During Trump, uh, the Iranian was saying the opposite. Trump was bad cop, 
and France was good cop. So this discourse is a propaganda tool uh, by the Islamic Republic, like, you know, the divide, and Ali will agree with me, between moderate and conservative. Uh, so if you want to cooperate with Iran, you say, look, they are moderate. And if you want to have a confrontational approach towards the Islamic Republic, you say, look, there's only conservative. So they're playing this game with us as well. They're playing the moderate conservative against the bad cop, good cop. So I think this is, a, you know, the carrot and stick approach, uh, sanction versus military option. And uh, in front of that, you have the moderate conservative. So it's on both sides, highly manipulative, I would say. So as analysts, we should be uh, above uh, this propaganda tool on both sides, I think. And finally, you said that we have a policy because we are pursuing collectively uh, the goal of non-proliferation. I agree. Uh, even Russia and China, they don't want uh, Iran uh, to militarize this nuclear program. But there is a debate about what is the best method and if you look at the method, at the tool that we can use, there is not a coherent uh, policy in Europe uh, during the Trump administration. You remember that Poland was very supportive of Trump policy and uh, Germany was more maybe critical and Italy even more critical. So it depends, you have a very different view. And if you look at the bilateral level, this is another story uh, because you have a confrontation, for instance, between the French security apparatus and the Iranian one, and the same with Germany, with uh, uh, Belgium now, we have, you have uh, the hostage industry. So I think there's many uh, topics that prevent uh, the rapprochement, uh, a real one, I mean, uh, beyond short-term, you know, uh, economic uh, interest. And for me, really, uh, Europe is a junior partner of the US on the Iranian dossier. As a partner, you can uh, debate, you can have your voice, but at the end of the day, I think we follow the guideline. If you look at the last uh, 15 years, it started with John Bolton in 2004-05, when he prevents uh, uh, the Troika of reaching a deal. So this alignment of, of Europe is not new. I remember in 2008, uh, we were following the Bush administration when Obama was elected. So it was very difficult to change policy in two years to adapt to the new Obama policy. So we keep adapting and pretending that we have a longer view and that we have a coherent policy. I think there is a lot of uh, bureaucratic, you know, uh, uh, communication, uh, talking points uh, in the fact that uh, when we look at the history of the last two decades to say that there is a continuity uh, in uh, European policy towards the Islamic Republic of Iran, uh, I think uh, there is not. This is my point of view. On Russia, I think there is a debate inside Iran. The idea is not that you don't have relations with Russia. I think what Javad Zarif said is belong to a conspiracy theory because as Professor Gardner explained, even John Kerry, uh, Barack Obama in his memoir, uh, all the former negotiators mentioned the constructive constructive role of Russia during the process of uh, negotiation between 2013 and 2015. So there is no debate on that. And why is a conspiracy theory? Because Javad Zarif think the Russian could imagine the Islamic Republic becoming friend with the US, which is totally a fantasy. 
It's the fantasy of the moderate in Iran. <laughs> it's not going to happen under the Romani ideological framework. Uh, it's part of the DNA of the Islamic Republic. So to bet on you know, uh, uh, a new friendship between Iran and the US with this regime, without regime change, I think is wishful thinking. That's why uh, I think that the problem of Europe is to be also between the US changing policy all the time and the Russian that are a current policy. They still argue the step-by-step -step approach. They have a very uh, current discourse on the Islamic Republic, which is the one of authoritarian stability. Uh, they even think that the revolutionary guards are a factor of stability in the Middle East and inside Iran. So they're going even forward comparing to Professor Gardner's presentation on uh, the GCPOA providing stability. They think the revolutionary guards are providing stability. So I think Russia, Russian approach is highly cynical regarding Iran, because if you look at trade between uh, Russia and Israel or Russia and the UAE, it's more important. Uh, even the, the top trade of last year, $3.5 billion between Iran and Russia, is nothing compared uh, to trade between Russia and Turkey, for instance. So I think there is a lot of politicized approach. And this is not fitting the Iranian national interest. That's why you have all these protests after uh, Raisi visit in Moscow. He was welcomed you know, with a five meters table. And when Putin was welcomed the prime minister of Israel, the table was very small. So it's not an issue of Corona, you know. So I think there is uh, this idea of Russia instrumentalizing Iran. But I think all countries are doing that. It is because the Islamic Republic has no relation with the US. So I think if we forget this very important point, it's a core issue of the anti-Americanism of the Islamic Republic as an ideological tenet of the regime. Uh, we cannot understand European policy towards Iran and Russian policy towards Iran. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Clement. And very important point there. Specifically, uh, it has implication on the future of the deal uh, that what Dr. Zarif has said, it may also be based on his uh, perception, you know? So uh, 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 we, we can't take it uh, in its entirety, very important. Now uh, I'll uh, go back to our uh, uh, Dr. Ali. Uh, please, uh, would you like to add something to the same question? Uh, sure, thank you. I mean, uh, first of all, I agree with most that has been said so far. Also, in terms of the lifting of the energy sanctions, I think it could be a long-term threat uh, to uh, Russian interests uh, when uh, you know when all those circumstances would uh, change that Clément has enumerated. And uh, in fact, European uh, or let alone American investment would flow in then it would be a major problem uh, for Russia because, uh, I mean, uh, especially, I mean, uh, talking about Iran in Europe, Iran could become a potential competitor to Russia's uh, quasi-monopoly when it comes to energy deliveries uh, for Europe. And uh, so this is very clearly uh, at least a long-term threat. This is why um, I think when it comes to the Zarif, uh, you know, uh, what Zarif has said, uh, for Iran's former uh, foreign minister, is reflective of a wider skepticism that exists uh, across Iranian society vis-a-vis -vis the role of uh, non-Western great powers in, in, in this game, uh, including um, Russia and China. Uh, talking about Russia, I think um, 
I mean, there was also uh, reported just a few days ago that uh, I think according to US officials, the Russians were tabling an interim agreement, um, which the Iranians uh, have continued to reject. Um, and I think this, you know, this falls in line with the kind of narrative that exists uh, on the role of Russia, which is to say that, um, you know, at a at a later stage uh, in, the, in, in, any, uh, in, in those negotiation processes over the JCPOA, the Russians would step in with a new kind of, um, you know, a proposal when they fear that they're going to be, uh, you know, a Iranian-American rapprochement that uh, may be to the, to the detriment of their interests. And the interim agreement, per definition, would mean, uh, you know, partial sanctions relief instead of the kind of sanctions relief that the Iranians would want. So in general, what I, I think we can all agree on, that Russia is very much interested to keep the Iran-US conflict fire aflame. And that's it. So they have no interest in an Iranian nuclear bomb, but they have also no interest in a kind of pacification of relations between Iran and the United States because of very obvious reasons. So I think we can uh, put it that, that way. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Uh... And uh, just one uh, uh, one specific point uh, linked to uh, uh, France, because I think uh, after AUKUS, uh, what uh, Professor uh, Gartner has said, uh, I slightly agree with him uh, that, you know, uh, but uh, giving a different argument, uh, argument uh, that of, you know, AUKUS deal that has happened between uh, US, UK and, uh, and Australia. So uh, before that and after that, uh, what would be the French cooperation uh, with the UK and US, or is, will there be any difference at all? And is it the reason why good cop, bad cop, you know, now French are good cop? Uh, I'll just uh, ask you, uh, request you to please, if there is a correlation between these deals or not, uh, uh, Dr. Clement. There could be because of uh, the non-proliferation goal, you know, uh, and the risk. Uh, of this deal for the nuclear proliferation uh, in theory that could be, but given the political relation between France and the Islamic Republic, there is no chance that will happen. France is very close to Israel, Saudi Arabia, UAE. Uh, so I don't see uh, uh, any difference uh, for the cooperation between France and US and UK on the Iranian issue, not only because they share the same view on Iran, but also that Iran can be a tool uh, to overcome uh, this problem with a common enemy. So I think it's the opposite. Iran is instrumental for every power. It's the case for Russia, China, but don't forget that is also the case for France, the UK. Uh, Iran is it's a tool, it's a card uh, that countries are playing to do something else. So France is using the Iran card uh, for rapprochement with Saudi, with UAE, Israel. UK is doing the same. Um, now that Biden is there, is to go against Trump and to uh, to do uh, to prove that Biden is right. You know that it's an internal policy between Democrats, and, and you see the tension between Richard Nephew and Robert Malley, for instance, uh, inside the negotiating negotiating team of the U.S. So I think uh, it's a controversial issue everywhere. Uh, this question of the Islamic Republic of Iran, because it's going beyond the nuclear issue. Uh, Dr. Ali Fatullah explained that you don't understand much when you deal with Iran only to the nuclear lens. 
I think it's not uh, very telling uh, about uh, uh, the situation uh, in the Middle East, the situation, uh, the ratio between Iran and the West. The nuclear issue is part of the problem, but uh, it's not the biggest part, I think. The, the biggest part is the fact that the Islamic Republic of Iran in 1979 chose uh, uh, to, to have this relationship uh, with the US after the taking of the hostage at the embassy in Tehran for 444 days. And you see that near Vienna, you have the former hostages today that are doing a sit-in. So, as long as the Islamic Republic will not ask for forgiveness <laughs> for this hostage taking, uh, uh, I see the status quo, as uh, Dr. Ali Fatouladejad, that suits well the interest of Russia and China. Uh, they need a level of, of conflictuality between Iran and the West that is not as high as it is now, because Iran is not that rich. So he cannot buy you know, Russian weapons, he cannot buy nuclear reactors, they cannot buy Chinese product. It's too broad, you know? So they need uh, a richer Iran, but an Iran that is not friend with the West neither. So that's why I think the key players today in Vienna are really Russia and China. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Clement. And now there's a very difficult question uh, for all the three of our panelists, deal or no deal? Uh, the specific question asked by one of our audience members, uh, Mr. Samuel, uh, uh, the current uh, negotiations uh, we are all uh, witnessing and all of us have a view uh, whether there will be a deal or whether there will not be a deal. Of course, the first step of that would be where th whether there would be a direct negotiation between Iran and the US. Uh, just recently, yesterday, uh, it came up that there, there could be a direct negotiation coming up. And uh, now that we have sorted the, uh, the, the issue of Russia, it's very important. Uh, personally, I was thinking that it's been very important that uh, that could also, you know, play a very positive role. So, uh, difficult question to take a stand uh, whether you would uh, go for a deal or not a deal. What do you think uh, would happen in future? Uh, I would uh, start uh, this time from uh, from uh, Dr. Ali uh, and then uh, 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 Dr. Clement and then maybe uh, Professor Hans. Deal or no deal? Do you see a deal coming up or in what format if uh, it is happening? Uh, let's, uh, Dr. Ali. Well, I think, uh, you know, uh, we're also in the realm of speculation a bit, although now there are, you know, signs from very, you know, from both the Western parts and the Iranian side that a uh, nuclear agreement might be uh, soon, uh, you know, materializing. And also, uh, you know, a sign is also the Iranians now saying that, you know, they don't have any problems to meet directly with the United States if such a deal is at reach, in reach. Um, but there are important uh, stumbling blocks that have been uh, pointed out by Professor Gatna, uh, which pertain uh, to Iran's demands to uh, get some kind of guarantee that the United States won't uh, renege again uh, on the deal. But this kind of, you know, this kind of guarantee, I think it's uh, it's very difficult to say it very diplomatically. Uh, to emerge. Um, I mean, given uh, the nature of US politics, given the multifaceted nature of the Iran sanctions regime and the role of Congress. Um, and also, uh, we have also a set of Iran sanctions that have nothing to do with the nuclear uh, issue. Um, and in terms of the guarantees, I think this is not something that the, uh, you know, that Washington can, can really deliver. Uh, given, uh, you know, the state of US domestic politics, uh, 
um, and before even an exit administration would come in. Um, and I'm not really seeing the ways in which uh, this kind of guarantee could be uh, given to Iran by uh, other means. Uh, I think, for instance, by the Europeans. So um, would it be the kind of rhetorical guarantees that the Europeans were giving to Iran as in the recent past that never materialized? Um, so I, I don't, uh, you know, I don't really understand uh, how this uh, issue can be solved. Uh, we may, um, in terms of, I mean, Iran has uh, pursued a nuclear uh, escalation strategy. It has also been pursuing, um, you know, uh, in, in the years leading to the official JCPOA negotiations back then. It has been quite successful. That is aimed at, uh, you know, um, elevating Iran's bargaining leverage in the tools. And um, uh, so for the uh, Western part, it is important that Iran uh, reduces some of its qualitative uh, advances. Um, so this would be, uh, you know, a deal in exchange for some sanctions relief uh, that would provide at least, you know, that would free some, uh, for instance, frozen assets, billions of dollars of frozen assets of the Iranians that are in other countries uh, and that are there because of U.S. extraterritorial sanctions, mostly. Um, and uh, so I think given the economic situation, economic crisis at home uh, for the Islamic Republic, uh, and despite the rhetoric to the contrary, when it comes, uh, you know, when uh, President Raisi time and again says that there is no, you know, there is no tying of the fate of the Iranians with the JCPOA and with the sanctions, which is, of course, uh, uh, nonsense, uh, because his budget, his uh, first budget that he's, he has proposed, is very much banking on this kind of, uh, you know, removal of sanctions also, uh, which I've laid down with a colleague now, uh, you know, published a few days ago by the Middle East Institute in Washington, <laughs> not in Singapore. Um, so um, I think when you look at the economic situation in Iran, you see there is a tremendous gap between the rhetoric of the Iranian authorities that say, well, everything is under control, everything is going fine. I think uh, I'm, you know, Iran is not going to collapse, but uh, I think the economic crisis at home is very stark. Um, and there has been ho hollowing out of the middle class over the last few years, despite the implementation of the JCPOA. So I think uh, there is a lot of issues to be dealt with uh, by the Iranians. So they, because of that, they might, they may, uh, you know, agree to such a imperfect deal in their eyes. Uh, plus the fact that they also need, uh, you know, money uh, to fill uh, you know, to, to, to money uh, for regime interests, which is for regime stabilization at home, uh, firstly, and also for Iran's regional policy. So this is something that, uh, you know, would benefit them in terms of cash inflow if, you know, uh, frozen assets are uh, released. Uh, but again, I think even if we have such a deal uh, materializing soon, you know, the major issues of contention will still be the same. So I think uh, you know, we'll have to deal with, uh, you know, uh, it, uh, questions of investment that have nothing to do uh, per se with sanctions, uh, you know, uh, the socioeconomic benefits from the economic dividends is also an important factor. Uh, Iran's regional policies, political missile policies, uh, other actors, uh, you know, interactions with other players in the region. So all of this, you know, are very important topics that will not be solved by uh, this kind of a deal. Okay, thank you so much, Ali. Uh, uh, now, uh, Dr. Clement, uh, 
let me make it more difficult for you. Deal, no deal. Fifty-one <laughs> percent deal or forty-nine percent deal. Uh, let's go it this way. <laughs> no, no, I agree with Sally. I think there could be a deal, but not the deal the Islamic Republic of Iran is saying he wants, uh, because the headline this weekend was no interim deal. So what? can be achieved because of Russia and Chinese influence. I think it's an interim deal, a short-term deal, because there is no room for a long-term deal without solving the other issue. And this is something that President Rouhani acknowledged at the beginning of August, uh, before leaving office. He said, anyway, a nuclear deal is not enough. Uh, we need a political framework if we want long-term investment. So there is some realist also. Uh, inside the Islamic Republic of Iran, there is two pillars, you know, the survival uh, pillars of moderate, the so-called moderate, the Rafsanjani faction, and the ideologue uh, around uh, Khamenei. So I think that this is an internal debate inside the political elite. So they have, it's a hard sell on both sides. It's a hard sell for Biden, for the Congress, the interim deal, because it's not what he said, neither. It was, he said a stronger and longer deal, uh, and that means nuclear plus. So the logic would be uh, nuclear plus. If you have a return of experience on, on both sides after the failure uh, of the first deal, um, I think both sides should uh, go into that direction. But because of the political nat nature of the revolutionary Islamic Republic, it's not feasible. You cannot negotiate ballistic missile. You cannot negotiate the network of influence of the Islamic Republic. You cannot negotiate the human rights issue. So you can imagine the reputational risk for a company to go on the Iranian market. They are not going to try a second time. So the, on the Iranian side, they know that. So uh, the realistic view is that they can achieve only an interim deal. But can they sell that uh, after saying for months that they can do better than the previous administration, and they have this divide, highly artificial divide between moderate and conservative, but still, it's how the politics are playing inside the Islamic Republic, inside the establishment. Uh, I think it's very difficult for internal uh, political reasons on both sides, but at the same time, there is no other option. So I think that would be a, um, a compromise. The, the ability, uh, they can compromise in Vienna, but I think after the US delegation has to compromise in Washington and the Iranian delegation has to compromise in Tehran. So I think uh, this is a challenge now. It's not the issue of the EU or, or Russia or China. This is based on the political will in Washington and in Tehran. Okay, uh, Professor Gartner, it's up to you to define. <laughs> uh, would you go for a deal or not a deal? No, yes, I would go for a deal. And um, actually, I, I would first uh, come back a little bit to this uh, interim deal. Actually, it was not a Russian, Russian proposal. It was an original. It came from the US a couple of months ago uh, already, an interim deal for uh, two years, uh, which meant uh, we would go to the come to the next administration. But the next uh, the situation in the next administration would be uh, worse. And now it came again, and I don't know really what happened, uh, but um, the rumor has it that actually the Americans told the Russian to uh, deliver this idea to the Iranians, uh, and the Iranians uh, rejected it, even so the Iranians uh, considered it uh, a little bit uh, before, but what would that mean? That mean 
uh, would mean a legitimization uh, of the sanction and opponents of the GCPA would say it would be a legitimization of Iran's nuclear program because the idea was uh, the idea was that Iran would stop reaching at 20 uranium at 20 percent and some assets would be unfrozen uh, for Iran so that nobody would be satisfied and uh, the decision would only have been uh, delayed. So the idea basically was uh, an interim deal uh, is not a good deal. And I guess the Europeans rejected it and uh, the, the Iranians uh, uh, as, as, as well. Uh, there are some issues, but uh, I think, think the delegations come much closer in all these issues. Even so, uh, if you talk about the guarantees uh, of uh, that the uh, agreement will not be uh, reneged uh, uh, again, uh, I guess so far the Iranians might be even satisfied if uh, President Biden could give the guarantees uh, for his uh, administration, but he has not uh, done so. Uh, but there are some mechanisms which has been discussed that Iran could, with the support of the Europeans and uh, the US, um, negotiate long-term economic uh, contracts, uh, which go beyond the next uh, administration. And there are some technical issues that you can safeguard uh, that uh, withdrawal uh, would not be likely. But having said so, I don't think necessarily the next president will withdraw anyway from the GCPA uh, because the, uh, they will re realize that the benefits for all would be uh, a good GCPA uh, anyway. And the, and the other issues uh, that uh, verification of the uh, sanction relief, it's possible as well, but it will take some time because you can measure it through the uh, uh, amount of oil which has been will be set, uh, uh, sold, and uh, also the amount of money which comes in. So, uh, not talking about an interim agreement, but there would be a transition period, of course, until the, the GCPA, if adopted in Vienna, will be fully implemented in order to verify uh, that sanctions will be uh, relieved. So it will take two to four months until the, uh, the GCPA can really. Uh, put into uh, into force. Uh, also, the question of sequencing, which is very much on the table right now in Vienna, uh, there are suggestions who starts first. So there will be will be no step uh, for step uh, sequencing because nobody wants to start first. Uh, so, but there is already in spring there has been some suggestions that you can do it in uh, in uh, packages. So you. Uh, shape packages and uh, they are implemented simultaneously, no, no matter who, who starts first. So there are many technical issues which can be solved. So that's why I do think uh, uh, there will be a GCPA in the next uh, 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 couple, couple of months. Let me say one, one, one more word to, to the original scene of uh, 79 uh, and because of that, there can be no good relations between US and, and Iran. Iran would say the original sin is uh, 53 in the Mossadegh, so they can play these uh, uh, narratives against each other. But uh, in the Iran hostage crisis, at least there was no casualty. But if you look at the Vietnam war, there were about 50,000 American casualties. And uh, uh, Vietnam is still a communist authoritarian state. 
state and uh, the US and uh, Vietnam have very good relations and have opened up diplomatic relations and embassies in 95. So if uh, President Biden would make a bold decision, uh, he could go back if he want to have a political framework because you're saying GCP is not enough. I agree, you have the political framework, but the political framework can come from Iran, but it can also come from the US. And if uh, President Biden makes a bold decision, uh, he could uh, establish diplomatic relations with uh, Iran and not only through the embassy in Switzerland. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Professor Gartner. Uh, I, I hope uh, uh, this answer is very helpful. Uh, there's been a repeated uh, uh, you know, input coming from some of our audiences. And uh, that's, I think, a link to a very important pertinent question. Uh, uh, what I normally say in person is, man thora rezim bagoyam tu mora rezim bago, which in English would translate into, I call you regime and you call me regime. So that is the crux of the whole problem. Iran calls Israel uh, Zionist regime and Israeli call Iranian regime. So a lot of people have objection to the usage of that terminology regime. Uh, but I think this uh, takes us to a very important uh, uh, question, which is, uh, uh, which is uh, this uh, uh, comment was asked by, uh, was, was fed by uh, Mr. Ali Sultania. And I think it's uh, very pertinent to uh, uh, have uh, an important aspect of this also, uh, how we call a government or what we term them or how we treat them. Uh, but uh, this is also linked to another question from one of my colleagues, uh, uh, Dr. Georgi, who has asked uh, uh, whether the Israeli position on JCPU has been changing, because I think this is linked to this regime question also, the respect, mutual respect, the lack of mutual respect between uh, the state of Iran and the state of Israel. Uh, Iran does not even recognize Israel as a state. Uh, so that is the crux of the problem, Israel being the only state which has not been, uh, you know, supporting a deal or any deal with Iran, even when U.S. is going its, its uh, deepest, uh, closest ally. So what has been or uh, what is currently the Israeli position on the JCPO? If we look at it deeply, maybe we can have a better answer uh, to the future of this deal and uh, the future of the Middle East as well. So if I could uh, go uh, from this order, uh, Professor, uh, Professor uh, Hans, maybe you can start and then we can go to Dr. Clement and then uh, Dr. Ali. Uh, yes, uh, I'm currently supervising a doctoral thesis on the changing Israeli uh, position towards the GCPA. And in fact, there is a substan substantial uh, change in the Israeli position, even so it's not recognized that much in the international uh, media because they're moving away from the decision by uh, President Trump that it is the worst deal ever. So now we, we, we are seeing uh, more and more Israeli voices saying we are much better off uh, in uh, the Middle East and concerning the Iran's nuclear program with a deal than uh, without the deal. Uh, so uh, also that goes back, uh, of course, to the uh, American-Israeli uh, talks uh, that we are moving, if Israel now is adopting uh, a positive attitude towards uh, the GCPA, uh, it's as a sign that it got the signal by the Biden administration uh, to do so uh, uh, as well. 
So the strong opposition we had during the Netanyahu uh, government uh, is gone. So Israel uh, might uh, reluctantly maybe, but still keeping up the option B, what Israel always is talking about, option B means eventually a military solution, uh, which Israel will still continue to talk about. Uh, if the US goes for a GCPA, uh, the Israel will not reject it as it uh, did during the uh, Obama administration and uh, the Netanyahu government. Yes, uh, please, uh, Dr. Senen. Yes, I think that uh, the issue of uh, Israel-Iran relation, um, uh, as an historian, um, first maybe on Mossadegh, because uh, Professor Gartner said something very highly controversial on Mossadegh and the Mullahs. The Mullahs supported Ayatollah Kashani uh, the fall of Mossadegh, the coup against Mossadegh. So they rewrite history. There is just a small Mossadegh street in Tehran, and Mossadeghists were in jail under the Islamic Republic. So it's a propaganda tool, once again, of Javad Zarif and the moderate. While at home, the historian cannot work on Mossadegh, and there is no memory of Mossadegh inside the textbook. I study the historical textbook of the Islamic Republic. and. Uh, they rewrite history. So it's funny to, to, in the West, to take the discourse of the regime because the historian, like Oliver Bass, for instance, said uh, the anti-US feelings that were real in the 1970s were more linked to the immunity that was given to US citizens inside Iran rather than the coup against Mossadegh. So there is a debate. Some are arguing, like Professor Ghana, that there is a link direct between 1953 and 1979. And the majority today say it's more complex than that. So that was just an historian uh, point of view on this. Uh, on Israel, uh, once again, uh, this is part of the DNA of the regime. The fact that the Shah has cordial relationship with Israel. And uh, you know that uh, Romani, when he took over uh, uh, the revolutionary movement inside Iran, he decided to have a regime change policy against Israel. So it's very funny that you criticize the fact that uh, we call uh, the Islamic Republic a regime when they call Israel an entity, non-existing entity. So sometimes I was joking, I was living in Iran during Ahmadinejad, how can you destroy an entity that doesn't exist? So <laughs> it was, uh, you know, this debate about the translation of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad to erase Israel from the page of history. So you have also anti-Semitic, uh, uh, feelings inside the uh, expert community in Iran. So you have a problem, I think, with Israel, who is part of the identity of the regime. So this is the core of the problem. Regarding the position of, of Israel on the nuclear issue, you cannot uh, separate the two. You know, the propaganda line of Israel is an absolute regime, cannot have an absolute weapon. So it's linked to the two. Uh, so the regime is not changing in Iran. What is changing? is the analysis of the threat from Israel. They think that the tool uh, to confront uh, the nuclear ambition and to manage the nuclear ambition of the Islamic Republic, uh, the, be the best tool is a covert operation. Uh, so that's why uh, they don't focus that much on the deal right now, because they think that through their infiltration, the network inside Iran, they can target you know, the Iranian nuclear program uh, through covert operation. And they think right now, I think what changed, uh, they believe more on covert operation rather than military option. 
uh, I think uh, maybe the analysis is changing about the counterproductive dimension of the military option as a tool, non-proliferation tool. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Claire. And uh, thank you uh, uh, very much for taking it uh, uh, so, uh, um, I mean, so positively. And uh, 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 we are running out of time and uh, we have so many questions that we really can't attend uh, all of them. And this uh, Vienna platform is actually, uh, has been created in such a manner that a number of issues are being discussed. I believe so, it's not just uh, nuclear. Uh, but uh, I think what we can do, we can wrap up this whole session by giving uh, 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 Dr. Ali his due chance to answer this question as well as uh, uh, to give some final words and then maybe we can wrap, wrap up. Uh, uh, Dr. Ali. Thanks so much. I don't want to, I mean, I don't have anything uh, substantial to add when it comes to Iran and Israel, which was nicely done by Clément, I think. Uh, uh, on the historical uh, comparison, I also have my doubts uh, in terms of the 1953 direct linkage to the Islamic, uh, to the Iran Revolution of 90, uh, 1979. It is part and parcel of the official discourse of the Islamic Revolution. It's not necessarily rooted in history. Uh, secondly, uh, I'm also doubtful about the comparison between the Islamic Republic and Vietnam. I think, uh, as far as I know, I mean, uh, you know, death to America or this anti-U.S. Uh, sentiment was not a core ideological pillar. I would very much doubt if even President Biden would would uh, offer a normalization of ties that, under the current circumstances, the Islamic Republic would uh, want to accept that. Um, and uh, also on a, another conceptual uh, question when it comes to the, uh, you know, uh, what one of the uh, participants raised, the wording of the regime. I think, of course, it, it can be used as a political tool in order to discredit others, but I think that it can also be a very uh, useful concept uh, in the Iranian case, uh, as I define it. It's the combination of state and semi-state entities in, uh, in the Iranian political structure. So it's not very difficult to understand because we have, uh, you know, important semi-state entities that are, um, you know, that you, you cannot, uh, you know, uh, separate from uh, uh, the uh, political power structure and also the economic power structure in the Islamic Republic. So there is a lot of merit uh, also using this all-encompassing uh, concept and uh, terminology. And thank you so much for this wonderful uh, panel. I really enjoyed it and I hope also the audience did. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Ali, and also thank you so much, uh, Professor Gardner and Dr. Clement. Uh, uh, we know each, each other through different platforms. It was really great to have, uh, I mean, this kind of conversation face to face. And uh, with this, uh, uh, I would like to uh, thank uh, our audience also who have participated and the, for those who have sent us uh, questions and those who have listened to our discussions. Let me also thank uh, Middle East Institute, National University of Singapore for organizing this event and uh, uh, specifically uh, Ms. Sharon uh, and her event team for, for putting everything together. And with this, uh, a great hello to all of you. Maybe we shall meet at some other platform. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.